This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Vulcans endorse doping. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review podcast. I am Gep, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! Season 2! Yes, Season 2, we're here. We made it. We're alive, and we're uh, doing the thing, and we're kicking some butt, and we got Chekhov. We got Chekhov. Season 2 was one of those weird legends of Star Trek we have this weird legend going through the end of every season that it was just about to be cancelled, and then there was the massive fan letter writing campaign that brings the series back from the brink of destruction. This apparently happens every time they run a season of Star Trek. Forever and onward. <laughs> I mean, interestingly, I was um, I was looking up some stuff with this because there's some uh, season one, I think didn't have as much of a legendary letter writing campaign as you're supposed to get after season two to bring it back for season three uh and there's a lot of debate with how much this was like an actual fan campaign or how involved gene roddenberry himself was in instigating fans to do this hey guys you wanna you wanna come do this for me if you want more of a show this is the only way you can get it guys come on yeah, and I suppose there's not anything particularly wrong with, like, him spearheading the campaign. So there's that. Yeah, well, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's, 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 he's, he's putting investment into his own creation. And I was, I was looking up some things, and I found this excerpt from a book called These Are the Voyages, which is apparently part of a three-part book series that goes through all three original Star Trek seasons. And... They had access to the original Nielsen ratings, which was pretty interesting. And apparently, the show did not have bad ratings, as is the claim for why they were always on the verge of cancellation. And them not having bad ratings makes a lot more sense, considering this was like a bona fide cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Even at the time. This isn't like a late-blooming cult tv show this was like something that that was a cultural force even when it was being aired so it doesn't make any sense that it would have these legendary low ratings to a certain extent it's kind of both uh very different than a lot of stuff that was kind of on at the time but also had the right uh, the, the the right vibe for the for the the time period that uh you know you know it's like there's elements that yeah, we've talked about several points that were sort of like these are sort of just the tropes you have at this period of time in TV, uh, and you know I guess sort of hitting those sort of squarely, you know, you know, you know, on, on the nose there, or whatever, uh, you know, sort of you know, you know made this a, a a something that people could really sort of engage with. People were people people were used to it without actually having seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, it really didn't. It pushed a lot of boundaries for sci-fi shows, which, um, as we talked about a little with the first season before this, were very Buck Rogersy and and rocket ships on strings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but apparently, the reason that it had you know the legendarily low ratings and things was because NBC pulled some Firefly-like shenanigans with this thing. Yeah, what's up with with networks and like hating sci-fi? <laughs> I don't know. They don't necessarily seem to hate sci-fi as for some reason they keep moving it around. 
for no reason. They they put it in kind of direct competition with I think it was uh, Bewitched and a couple of their other like really popular shows, and they kept changing its time slot. So of course it started getting lower ratings. It's always hard to go off uh, go up against witches. Yes, it's very difficult, especially with this kind of. I don't know. This was a very establishment show, but so was this the weird witchcraft show, which I don't understand how that gels. <laughs> You're going to be doing witchcraft at that time period. You kind of have to be established with <laughs> Well, I don't know. Like, we're, we're looking at it from now as, like, having grown up through the 90s. I don't feel like the satanic panic was as much of a thing in the 60s. That was kind of an 80s phenomenon. Now, Satan is coming to you through your, your, your rock music and your Dungeons and Dragons and your your your... your neon styles and your punk rock music <laughs> yeah now that's a very brilliant segue because speaking of music new character mm-hmm. Chekhov, put in specifically to appeal to the teen girl demographic that was being drawn in by bands like the beatles and the monkeys i guess he does kind of have this mod look to him yes his hairstyle was very much inspired by the lead monkeys singer who was very popular on his own show at the time. I, I, I watched a bunch of the monkeys ages ago, but I don't remember any of their names. <laughs> I know, it's very sad since uh, since one of them recently died <laughs> as of this recording. I was unaware of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been hearing about it and I felt bad. Because when I was a kid, I watched The Monkees on repeat. It was one of the shows that I was allowed to watch as a kid. So I've seen every episode of The Monkees at least twice. And I don't remember any of their names offhand. It's very it's one of those things as a child I enjoyed. The music is stuck in my head constantly. But I guess the band members themselves really didn't stick. Which, yeah, I guess I mostly remember it's like, oh, that one's kind of the taller one. That's the guy with that face sort of thing. And that's about it. And uh, I guess to a certain way, they're they're sort of doing that thing where they're more tropes than characters. And speaking of Chekhov, I was very sad to learn that the stories of him being requested by the Russian government were apocryphal. What what we kind of amusing, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, apparently Gene Roddenberry sent a press release about having a Russian character on the show to a Russian communist newspaper that ran a story about it. And then later that story was reported on by NBC as being the impetus for the character, but they got it the other way around. (laughs) Well, you know, you know, no bad reporting can go unrewarded. (laughs) So... First appearance of Chekhov, played by Walter Koenig, who is not introduced. He's just there. Yeah. They don't introduce characters on this show. (laughs) Just, you know, just someone who's sort of in the background, just hanging out, and then we interact with him at some point in that episode, and then we continue on. (laughs) Roddenberry specifically brought this character indicator to younger audiences, and specifically as kind of a comic relief character. Because in interviews with Koenig uh, about his casting, he came in, he was asked to do kind of that stereotypical Russian accent that Chekhov is famous for. Yes. And apparently some of the lines he was given to audition involved the ship exploding. 
<laughs> was like, Captain, the ship is about to explode. The engines are overheating. And Rodrigo's like, okay, make it funny. It's like, the, 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 the engines are about to explode. How am I supposed to make that funny? <laughs> the engines are about to explode. <laughs> um, oh no. <laughs> so that's why... Chekhov has this oddly comedic tone through the entire run of the series because he was intended as a as a comic relief kind of sexy rock and roll boy character to appeal specifically to teenage girls. And so uh, we got you know you know our, our sexy rock and roll boy character here, and is he going to be important? Or I guess we're going to find out throughout the series here. Yeah, he's so integral. To what you think of as original Star Trek, that it's been very odd going through the whole first season without him there. Yeah, and it's like there's a gap in our hearts, a Chekhov-shaped gap. (laughs) Well, it was kind of, they kept kind of farming out the comic relief to other characters, it, it felt like there was this, this comedic element that needed to be in the show in order for it to function well, but they didn't have a good place for it to land. Because in later, in later episodes, and especially in the movies, you will have a fairly serious situation, and then Chekhov will say a dumb, funny line, mm-hmm. instead of just a random character saying a dumb, funny line. It's like, oh, uh, you know, a serious interrogation bit here, and... Can I go now? <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, I feel like it will help. It'll help maybe smooth out some of the tonal shifts. Of course, we're only one episode into the first season so, or the second season so far, which I suppose we should start talking about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just about to say we we're not even there yet. We we're just at the beginning. Yes. Though this episode was written by famous science fiction author uh, Theodore Sturgeon who wrote More Than Human uh, in 1954, Ah. which I'm not as familiar with. Uh, Many lists of science fiction authors at the time, his contemporaries, uh, the the lists of the best sci-fi authors from that time period put him at kind of second place behind, like, uh, sometimes I think like Heinlein. You know, uh, he's uh, also known for uh, Sturgeon's Law, which is uh, nothing is o- always absolutely so. And then there's also the uh, sort of a corollary, his his revelation. 90% of everything is crud. Mm, yes. 90- I feel like we've <laughs> talked about this before. I think so, yeah. It was, it was a while ago. <laughs> so suffice it to say, well-known author of the time, considered to be like one of the top five science fiction authors amongst his contemporaries... Maybe maybe someday I, I shall challenge Heinlein for the number one spot. <laughs> First you'd have to live through the 60s. Okay, step one, invent time travel and go back to the 60s. <laughs> Which, this, every time every time we get an episode written by one of the famous sci-fi you know, luminaries of the age, the characters all of a sudden become characters, and it's very jarring. And uh, I'd say that happens here, too. <laughs> And it's hard to tell if this is a tonal if this is a tonal shift that we are actually going to keep throughout season two or not. Fingers crossed. So we've got a few guest stars in this. They all show up in the third act, so they're not particularly around for most of the episode. Well, one of them kind of shows up a little earlier, but you know, it's just more on the on the screen. Yeah, Shelia Lovesky as Tapau. I think it might be Celia. That makes more sense. 
Yes, uh, I believe she's uh, Czech, I think. Yes. We have a lot of Tuth names. To Pau, to Pring, um, to Christine Chapel. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Arlene Martel as to Pring, not to Pau. And also, to Pau is not to Paul from Enterprise. But they had been thinking about making to Paul in Enterprise to Pau, but that would require some rights licensing they didn't want to do. Yeah, it would also be some really dumb, dumb, dumb idea. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have Lawrence Montaigne as Stone. I thought it was Stone. Maybe Stone. Stone? Maybe Stone, maybe Stone. It's probably Stone. It's spelled like stone with two N's, so I suppose that could be Stan. But with all these N's, I'm suddenly being compelled to reach up into the sky and, and uh, yell, Stan! Yes, so Stan. <laughs> uh, these are all new Vulcan characters because this is the first time that we get to see a lot of Vulcan and get some backstory for Vulcan and it introduces an important fact of Vulcan biology that is used later on in other series. Yep. We also see the planet Vulcan for the first time. It kind of looks like Mars. Yes. Vulcan is very much just Mars, which makes sense given where space exploration-y stuff was. Mars is like this random planet that even people of the time period still thought may or may not be inhabited. I mean, at, in the 60s, largely known, probably not, but Mars possibly being inhabited and having canals was considered, like, very scientifically accurate, like, into, like, the 40s and 50s. That sort of uh, ingrained sort of perspective does persist for a while after it's been disproven. As much as I think we might not have as much to talk about in this episode, which is why we spent a long time on the beginning of season two, we should jump in since we are 10 minutes into the episode already. Oh, more than that, actually. <laughs> yeah, but I'm counting in editing. <laughs> Spock is acting weird. Oh, no. Is he sick? No one knows. Kirk comes out of a tube, which is the first time we see Kirk in this episode. He's climbing out of a random floor tube. And McCoy tells him how concerned he is about Spock acting weird. But Kirk dismisses it until Nurse Chapel shows up with a tray of Vulcan soup for Spock, and after they sufficiently make fun of her for having a crush on Spock, she goes into his quarters, which apparently they were just standing outside of the entire time in this random hallway, and no sooner does she enter than Spock throws the soup out of the room while yelling. So he is definitely not doing his normal routine here. Okay, I understand. The soup is quickly followed by Spock, who continues screaming at Nurse Chapel until he notices he has an audience and calms himself down, at which point he turns to the captain and requests that he be granted a leave of absence on his home world. When Kirk questions him about this, Spock denies him an answer. Spock? Are... That's not how this works here. Come on. You should know better. Kirk later on confronts Spock more about his request because Spock is in such a bad way. His hands are shaking and he looks like he's in a great deal of pain, but Spock still refuses to give an explanation and is adamant that he take his leave on Vulcan, not the planet that they are going to for a recent diplomatic mission. Kirk finally does agree and orders that they set course for Vulcan. So, uh, of course, change number one. 
But a short <laughs> time later on the bridge, Ohara receives a communique from Starfleet that their next mission has been moved up by several days and they no longer have time to stop by Vulcan. Spock is nonplussed, but being a Starfleet officer, he understands that orders are orders. Of course, change number two. <laughs> I think this is about where we uh, run Chekhov for the first time, by the way. Yes, Chekhov is the new navigator. He's driving the ship. Fly us away to Altair 6. Yes. He sits next to Sulu. This is his permanent spot. This spot used to be filled by random people every episode. But they finally decided to settle on one guy to actually have the job. He is the navigator. I believe it's not specifically referenced, but generally Sulu was considered to be some sort of piloty character, but he's also kind of now the, the security officer. So we don't really know <laughs> what Sulu does except for sitting next to Chekhov, who is the navigator. Um, he's the one who fires the phasers, I think, now. <laughs> Later on, Kirk decides that he would like to see about stopping off at Vulcan anyway, despite the fact that their next mission has been moved up. He acquires with Chekhov into how long it would take if they changed course and went to Vulcan on the way to their next mission. Chekhov informs him that they are already on course for Vulcan, as Spock has ordered. Well, uh, course change number three. <laughs> yes, also being Chekhov, they're on course for Vulcan. Vulcan. <laughs> Kirk confronts Spock about what is essentially mutiny. Yeah, you are kind of violating the captain's orders there, Spock, and you, you didn't, like, you tried to hide it, and, you know, come on the brig with you <laughs> spock does not disagree that this happened but he says he has no memories of ordering it maybe he's uh, you know uh, got some sort of brain parasite now he continues to not explain himself until kirk finally orders him to report to sick bay for a physical probably should have done this earlier you know Spock reports to sickbay, says he refuses to lie down because he was only ordered to report to sickbay and loopholes, but McCoy says he was ordered to look at Spock, so lie down, you... <laughs> Get down, baby. Otherwise, we're gonna have to hold you. McCoy finally examines Spock and in a panic runs up to Kirk to tell him that if Spock does not return to Vulcan within the week, he will die. Oh no. He'll, d he'll be dead, Jim. When pressed for explanation, he says he has no idea why, but Spock's body functions are starting to go out of balance, as if a massive amount of the Vulcan equivalent of adrenaline were being pumped into his body continuously. What if it wasn't adrenaline? <laughs> I'll just leave that there. <laughs> I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> Kirk checks on Spock in his quarters again. Spock continues to say that he cannot explain because it is something that is known only to Vulcans and a very select few who have been directly involved. But after more pressing, Spock does hint that his condition has to do with Vulcan biology and the part of their biology that they cannot suppress despite all of their logic. So what would that be? Um, could it be their need to have certain hairstyles well kirk finally gets the hint and asks spock about the birds and bees so spock you ever gotten laid spock explains that vulcan breeding is like that of earth salmon in that they have a strong biological need to return to their home or they will die that sounds painful this is not how salmon work nope <laughs> 
But you know, we could, you know, you know the, the episode doesn't know that. <laughs> in fact, salmon return to their homes and then die. After you've gotten busy. Finally, understanding the full extent of the problem, because Kirk is very committed to other people getting laid, he calls Starfleet to inquire about delivering Spock to Vulcan, but Starfleet thinks their current mission is much too important to delay. Kirk believes that the mission is purely political and not worth risking Spock's life, but he's not willing to tell Starfleet that it risks Spock's life, so instead of just explaining things, he decides to defy orders and divert course for Vulcan once again. I lost track of how many course changes we've done now. <laughs> I don't know, but this is around the time that Chekhov mentions getting space sick. Yep. <laughs> Nurse Chapel, who overhears the good news about going to Vulcan, runs to Spock's quarters to inform him. Spock wakes up when she gets there and says that he was dreaming about her and that it would be illogical for them to protest against their natures. Chapel is very confused and possibly excited by this. But she starts crying, tells them that they're on their way to Vulcan, and he asks if she can make him some soup that he threw at the wall. Uh, I don't know why we're still invested in this Nurse Chapel is interested in Spock thing. Well, I think as far as the context of the episode goes is that Spock's kind of wants to return the feelings, but is sort of like, well, I got obligations, you know. And so he's kind of being torn up a bit inside, and that's maybe one of the reasons he was lashing out at her. I don't feel like this is necessary, ever. This is just a weird thing. I mean, Nurse Chapel is not a very deep character, and the only thing they ever give her to do is pine after Spock, and it's kind of boring. Well, they did have her uh, you know, run into those robots the one time, but you know. Oh, yeah. Robots. <laughs> that was the most interesting thing she ever did, and Michelle Barrett says that it's the only time the character was ever interesting, and she still hated um, it. Which is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> I feel like if the person who played the character said that she was boring and stupid, I'm allowed to hate it too. <laughs> I think I'll endorse that. <laughs> Once they arrive at Vulcan, Spock says that he has the right to bring his closest friends along with him, so he asks Kirk and then McCoy to go with him for this some sort of ceremony on the planet. Yeah, Kirk, come along, it'll be great. And uh, I guess I should bring McCoy. I just I did like the acting in this because he asks Kirk, and McCoy is standing right there, and McCoy just gets this look like, yeah, so when you asking me, I'm right here too, you know. Just FYI, there were some decent acting beats in this episode. I've got to give him that. Like, it's kind of a wash. Sometimes the writing is better, and sometimes the acting is carrying it a little bit. I feel like they're finally getting into their stride a little bit better in this episode, though. Uh, they seem to know what their characters are about uh, much more. Back on the bridge, Vulcan calls. And a young Vulcan woman appears on the screen. She is introduced as Tepring, Spock's wife. Surprise! Shocked faces all around! Which, she's only his wife as long as they need it to cut to commercial and be shocking. She's not actually his wife. <laughs> After the shocking commercial break revelation, Smock explains, no, she's basically his fiance from an arranged marriage that they had their families set up when they were seven yeah so you know, you know a, a wife to be perhaps but not wife yeah which like he kind of says like there's not really a human term for it but there is so 
Well, maybe Spock just doesn't know that there's a human turd. <laughs> yeah, maybe arranged marriages have been gone on Earth for so long, they just don't understand this concept. Or maybe in this particular century, you know, the the concept of even getting married at all is kind of an unusual thing. So it's like Spock's like, well, humans don't really do marriages that often. Everyone's married to their ships or something. It's kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my best friend is married to a hunk of metal, so I don't understand why I have to go through this. <laughs> yep. The wedding party arrives with to bring a lot of men with weird hats and bells. Some other random Vulcan dude is there, and there's an older Vulcan woman that Kirk recognizes as T'Pau, who is the only person ever to turn down a seat on the Federation Council. So, so we've established previously that at some point Vulcan got invaded, and then there there is they're, they're associated with the Federation somehow, but it's a little murky what that is. So, did 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 humans invade Vulcan, and then she'd like was like we're like okay, we're gonna make you part of our government now. Now, and she's like, nope. Is that what happened? I'm not sure. I mean, they, they talk about it like this is just like she is the only person in the universe who is just too good for the Federation. And that has made her, you know, universally famous. It's like, I'm better than you. So, you know. Kirk comments that he did not know Spock's family was this important. You you like should. <laughs> because we as we know from later, which I know they have not written this yet. But, like, his father is an ambassador. You, sh you should yep. know this, Captain. It's like, he's kind of famous. Come on. Yeah, like, you don't know who the people, like, running your politics are? You're too married to your ship to be paying attention, I guess? Well, he was complaining about, the you know, the, their mission being a, pol a political one. But maybe, so maybe he hates politics. He's not going to pay attention to politics. Stupid politics. <laughs> and, you know, making life-death decisions about where I'm going to be set on missions. Meh. Getting in the way of my space shooting. And my, you know, changing course constantly on the way to Vulcan or Altair 6. <laughs> Tapao talks a lot about ceremony and... How Vulcan's ceremony and how everything's okay because it's ceremony, which means it doesn't have the implicit contradiction with their logical lifestyle that one would see normally. You know, ceremony, uh, you know, is sort of, I guess, a form of behavioral discipline, and they're all about the mental discipline, so I guess it's sort of in the same genre? To paraphrase my favorite author, Terry Pratchett, if you're not going to do something ceremonial because it's silly, you may as well give up on the whole thing right now. <laughs> the wedding begins. Spock is just about to ring a big old gong, which I guess will make him married. And T'Pring stops him. This is her right of refusal to not want to get married and instead pick a champion to fight for her. The winner of this battle will win her... As a piece of property, they specifically mention this as a property thing. This is getting uncomfortable. Yes. And this is the only way that she is allowed to contest the marriage. This kind of sucks. McCoy sizes up the dude that she has been standing next to, assuming that this is the one she wants to fight Spock. And he announces yeah. that in Spock's currently compromised condition... He will probably not be able to beat this man that she is with. Spock, meanwhile, is completely out of it, is explained as an insane blood fever. Yes. You know, and uh, 
various bits before this, uh, we've sort of been you know, hinted at this this uh, this state of being, this pawn far, as it were, uh, is uh, you know, a, a something that Vulcans have been dealing with for their all entire uh, biological uh, existence. But all the ceremony and stuff has been sort of crafted to sort of help them cope with it and to sort of formalize the you know, marriage system so that, you know, the, the when the males sort of enter the state, they're able to have a way a relief valve of sorts yeah and, that yeah, goes pretty well with some stuff we have to talk about later depring steps up to announce her champion and instead of pointing to the man she is with she identifies kirk as the man she wishes to fight for her i guess if it's going to be anyone who's going to be able to take down spock it's going to be kirk yeah because yeah. kirk's already <laughs> beaten spock like twice now well, the man... easy third time <laughs> the vulcan man she is with stan speaks up that he know i'm the champion i'm the one who's gonna fight because i was here for this freaking ceremony but he's told to just shut up because it's ceremony stop being emotional vulcan dude come on man it's like unless he's also blood fevering he has no excuses to be emotional unless he's not as logical as he likes to think hmm wait are the vulcans full of crap the way that they're showing us vulcan society at this point could have been a more interesting thing, and I think they do it better Worf in Next Generation, is you kind of have this setup where Spock is half Vulcan, so he has incorporated more stringently the ideals of the Vulcan society than the actual full Vulcans have because he feels that he has something to prove. And uh, so you sort of go over the top, you go... And, you know, and, you know, make sure that you live every bit of the rules as they are written, as opposed to how they're actually practiced. But this is something that they don't really carry forward. Like, Vulcans become pure logical further on. But since this is the first time we've seen any Vulcan that's not Spock, and they're acting all weird and emotional. Though, though this does remind me of something um, that uh, I learned about my early days of college, uh, where, where a friend of mine was uh, getting ready to run a... Uh, a tabletop game of uh, Star Trek that, uh, you know, some of the stuff like, you know, novels or what, or source books or something like that he was reading uh, at the time, he found about out about some minor sucks of uh, uh, Vulcan culture and uh, religion where they're like, yeah, you're logical and emotionless unless they're happy emotions. That's okay. And so, you know, you know, that, you know, there's, there, there's, there might not be as much monolithicness to their society as well on top of that. But that's never shows on the show. So I remember reading something about that, and I wish that they didn't have such monolithic cultures because it's something that's always, always bothered me about science fiction. Yep. <laughs> How do you have such a monolithic culture across an entire planet? You know, uh, the, the planet of hat syndrome. You know, you have to be, you have to conform to our our shtick, otherwise you're not one of us. <laughs> Kirk is told that he is allowed to back out of the ceremony at this point because he is not bound by their laws, but he gets no other information, nor does he ask for any. So are you you're going to turn this down, right? Because this is really silly. <laughs> he thinks that if he fights Spock, he can just knock him out, and he won't have to fight the other dude who would probably kill him. So it's a better idea for Spock if Kirk accepts the challenge. What if Kirk doesn't accept the challenge, and because of that... That means the, the challenge is both valid but unable to be completed. And so no one has to, to get in a fight? No, they say if he turns it down, she'll have to pick another champion. Kirk accepts, and he and Spock are given big American gladiator spear knife looking things. 
Yeah, they're they're pretty badass and kind of iconic. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the weapons that you will have seen. Yes. <laughs> you may not know it was from this show, but you will have seen it. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, you know, it sort of is parodied in multiple things after this, as well as the music that's going to be playing here momentarily. Yes. In fact, the music became so iconic that it is used as the de facto fight music for all of season two. The music for the fight is called The Ritual slash Ancient Battle slash Second Karakia, which is what they call this ceremony thing, and became the standard combat scene score for season two. So we'll be uh, probably hearing this again at some point. Was also apparently spoofed in Jim Carrey's The Cable Guy. Was used in Futurama. Yep. <laughs> it is at this point that after Kirk and Spock have been given big ol' spears, slashy weapons, pike things, that Kirk is informed that this is actually a fight to the death. Oh, surprise! Did we not, did we not tell you? Did you not ask? Come on. Kirk is able to hold his own for a little bit. But then he's cut through the chest, giving him that weird little, I guess, supposed to be sexy shirt slash right by his nipples. Enough chest to make you go, hmm, that's a chest that's bleeding. Kirk is disarmed, but dodges a death blow, and then they call halftime. As you do in a battle to the death, I guess. (laughs) McCoy runs up and says that this is unfair because the air on Vulcan is too thin for humans. It's also hot. This is something they established earlier. Vulcan has a thinner atmosphere than Earth, so all of them are acting like they're at elevation. So, yeah, it's like being at an elevated desert sort of thing. So it's like New Mexico. Yeah, they're fighting in New Mexico. He can't do much about the hot, but he can give Kirk an injection of trioxide, apparently, that will help him breathe better. Giving him drugs. You're doping him up, man. Well, he's giving him extra oxygen to try to level the playing field, which T'Pau agrees is fine. And they give Kirk the hypospray. I don't think T'Pau thinks Kirk's going to be, you know, <laughs> able to survive this. And she's like, yeah, it doesn't matter if you give him all sorts of drugs. It doesn't matter. Yep. He's going to lose. <laughs> they are both given slightly odd-looking bola-looking things. Big, big balls on sticks. Or strings, I mean. While Kirk is playing with his haphazardly, Spock grabs Kirk by the leg, wraps it around his neck, and has him in a chokehold, immediately killing him. I guess that's uh, the end of James T. Kirk. Um, I guess the uh, the Enterprise is now a wi- now a widow. So, um, <laughs> Spock, you you you're in charge now. Chekhov gets to be captain. I would watch oh. that. Oh, sweet! That'd be awesome. This apparently breaks Spock out of his bloodlust thing. He sadly informs the transporter room that they need to beam up Kirk and McCoy. Spock confronts Pring because he does not understand why anyone would logically not want to marry him. It's illogical to not want to marry me. I'm such a studly man. Yeah, I'm the best. What's going up, lady? Come on, tell me. Tell me why I'm not good enough for you. She explains that he is too famous. She says she does not want to be someone with someone who is that famous. But Stone is hot, and she picked Kirk because if Kirk won... He wouldn't want to marry her, and she'd get to be with Stan. And a Spock one, he'd be really upset about killing Kirk, and she'd get to be with Stan. I guess it kind of makes sense, but it's also kind of um, 
a little psychotic this whole situation honestly well i suppose this is what the vulcan ideal is supposed to be is pure logic divorced from emotion yeah and and someone dies in the end i guess <laughs> except it can't be divorced from emotion because she's like basing all this an emotional decision of wanting to be with someone yeah so mm. beaming back up to the ship spock announces that he's going to turn himself in to be court-martialed for killing his commanding officer but kirk who's been standing behind him says that he should probably check with his captain first you know as you do spock turns around gets all emotional goes oh my god jim and then goes oh mm, i am glad to see you captain yeah spock looks like genuinely happy for like half a second like smiles and everything and like grabbing you know, you know kirk's arms and like you know like i'm like i'm gonna hug you or kiss you or all of those things and then he's like oh yes i need to be logical yes he composes himself says he's surprised to see Kirk alive, but they explain that the injection they gave him was not to make him breathe better. It was a paralytic that made him look dead. So you cheated, in other words. Hmm. Yep. How does that feel, Spock? To be a cheater. Immediately after, there is a communique from Starfleet that says that at the request of T'Pau, the Enterprise is cleared to delay their next mission and detour to Vulcan. Well, I'm glad this got sorted out so we're not all in trouble yep zero consequences <laughs> hooray mccoy shames spock for having feelings even though they all claim he wants they want him to have feelings it's not a good way to get you can't shame people into having things that you want them to have yeah it... pay attention reddit he and kirk return to the bridge the end also i noticed that sick bay has a lizard on its wall yes <laughs> <laughs> and that's the main lesson of the bloody episode <laughs> i suppose in the future you don't need to worry too much about being hygienic not really you know, you know it's uh, maybe it's like a uh, like a, a lizard that like actually helps with hygiene it like goes around and like uh, eats all the bacteria or something yeah it's like a like a feeder fish cleans the tank every <laughs> night the lizard crawls around and eats all the gook and sick pay it's the future we could have these sort of things it's like a biological Roomba so I wasn't exactly thinking this before but in kind of the theme of next generation remaking and poking fun at all these episodes we actually have kind of a mix of two next generation episodes that both handled these concepts better if one was more racist we have the fight to the death with the fake death when Tasha Yar is kidnapped by the sort of vaguely African civilization. The the episode that I skip whenever I'm watching Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> and then you have the thing that was actually handled a lot better, which is the arranged marriage of Counselor Troy. Oh, yes. In the first season. And uh, where the, the weird, creepy, like, luggage shows up and with the face in it. And he's like, hey, here's your wedding gift. And here, your your people are going to be beaming up to get you married, and then, yeah. Which, it's an interesting one, because I can't tell how this episode views arranged marriages, but I can tell how the next generation views arranged marriages. Yeah. <laughs> not, too, not too fondly, honestly. <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing, because in this episode, the arranged marriage is kind of just there as something that exists no one particularly questions 
And then the ceremony surrounding it makes all the weirdness and, and like blatant misogyny of the episode supposedly okay. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> the arranged marriage thing in Next Generation is a lot closer to how people describe arranged marriages, at least in cultures that have them set up in a way that's not in kind of a property dynamic because you do have some arranged marriages even today in some places where the woman is considered just property that gets traded around like oh well we'll marry this person and then we'll also get a you know some something in return so your 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 son will have some you know a wife and we are now more rich, so hooray! But there's a lot of places where people talk about having arranged marriages and not really minding them that much. Because it's not so much about, like, you are a piece of property that we have decided to sell to this guy. It's more just, we ha- our two families, like, are friends, and we have two kids, and we're going to arrange that our two kids get married. And it's just this thing that you kind of have to you know, figure out your life around a little bit. And that's what they kind of do in the Next Generation episode with Counselor Troy, because she's a little bit nonplussed by it. But she goes like, you know, let me get to know this guy. Let me think about it. She she starts warming to the idea throughout the episode. Yeah. Actually, to the point where at the end, where it doesn't work out, she seems like even, like, well, not completely disappointed like maybe a little bit it's like i was preparing for this it was seemed like it could go well it's something that could have gone into my life in a good way and now it's like not gonna happen and while i didn't necessarily want to get married i'm slightly disappointed that this part of my life didn't work out that way yeah so i guess this is not something i have to look forward to for be it good or bad hmm. interesting and that's kind of the way that people who are in like happy arranged marriages have described it it's like something that both parties have had arranged they both kind of have to get to know the other person like a fairly normal relationship as we would think of it and a lot of people describe it as being a happier relationship than what we have in some of our western capitalist societies where you were supposed to have this idea of a single soulmate and like one true love and a bunch of things that they claim put unrealistic expectations on relationships you know and uh yeah, in some ways the arranged marriage is sort of like, well, I guess we're gonna get married. I guess so. Eh, let's let's figure out how to make make it work. Well, well, you know, elsewhere it's like you know, you know, it's it's gotta be perfect. I do feel like there is something in that. Like I don't, I I honestly do not know enough. I don't know anyone personally who has ever been involved in an arranged marriage style thing. Like I've heard some interviews on both sides of this. But there is definitely something to that idea of saying that there are just some things in relationships that you just have to learn how to make function. And trying to expect that these things are just going to be perfect from the outset can be fairly poisonous to setting up functioning relationships. Just assuming that things are going to be perfect does not make it perfect. You know, uh, relationships are always going to be a work in progress, a conversation, something that both parties need to be putting investment in. Otherwise, it's just going to lead to suffering. However, this is not that kind of arranged marriage. Because (laughs) she is specifically referenced as property. And to be 
one through combat. The only say she has in this is which person she would rather be the property of, and then they have to fight it out over her. In the end, yeah, even her one option for agency in all this is you know, the result of that is not really her decision. And in even in cultures now, like I, I remember reading something specifically about some like arranged marriages in India. While there is a great deal of family and societal pressure on an arranged marriage, there's nothing particularly legally binding about the arrangement. Like both either party can leave if they want to sort of a you know if you don't do this your entire family is going to be shunning you sort of situation which kind of sucks and it's you know support mechanism all that yeah like there's definitely social pressure and that should not be ignored but yeah it's something that you can just say no i'm not interested in this which it does not sound like that is an option here yeah i I do know uh at least one person who uh you know wasn't you know in you know putting put into arranged marriage but kind of like had a similar vibe, I guess. Uh, and there was sort of a, you know, when things weren't, you know, going the direction that, you know, some of the family members wanted, you know, sort of like, hmm, well, this is your decision, but we're still going to be kind of hmm about it sort of thing. This is a brief addendum recorded after the original recording of this episode because I wanted uh, to uh, bring up one thing that we didn't get to in the episode. I just completely didn't think to even bring up. Uh, regarding uh, arranged marriages, and that's the unfortunate phenomenon of child marriages. Uh, A number of countries, including the United States, have either entirely or in part uh, allowed, you know, individuals under the 18 to be married under specific circumstances in most cases. Um, Sometimes those circumstances are non-existent or they're very easy to acquire. Uh, One of the most common ones is if the parent uh, agrees to the marriage. And so if you have a situation where, say, a parent has arranged for their your, their underage you know, son or daughter to get married to someone who's much older, that's, one, kind of skeevy, and uh, two, very legal in a number of states. And uh, I think it should be sort of, you know, I felt compelled to uh, add this in to uh, sort of bring more awareness to that that the fact that this is a thing and that is it is very much legal in a number of places uh, another exception is you know, if one of the parties is pregnant if say some young girl is sexually assaulted and she becomes pregnant from that she may be compelled by her parents or maybe even legal authorities it's like hey you know you should really get married who's the father and then suddenly she's being sort of compelled to enter a uh, forced marriage with her own rapist and that is totally unacceptable but yet it's still legal uh, as i said before it varies by state and different countries have different laws um i uh, what the thing that got me thinking about this is i actually read an article about uh, the attempts to change the law in the state of idaho uh, and basically some of the people that were in opposition to you know increasing the uh, age of marriage and adding more restrictions and all that uh, where basically it's like, you know, we don't want more abortions, so we got to make sure these young kids are getting married if they get pregnant. There's a lot of ugliness here that we, you know, we don't really go into. You know, we're not, you know, I'm not going to go into presently, but I, I want the audience to be aware of so that you know you can sort of, you know, you know, if you are interested in learning more, this is an opportunity to be aware that this is a thing, 
and uh, as a society, maybe we should be doing better. I question if a society set up around something like this, where you have a fully biologically driven incentive to mate, would actually have this kind of marriage structure. Yeah, it's it's sort of because if it's a you got a mate or die sort of situation, then wouldn't it make more sense to basically be thinking ahead as opposed to waiting until you're in the blood fever before you get married? The idea that this culture, which obviously treats biological mating so completely differently from ours, would still utilize the 1950s popularized idea of a nuclear family traditional marriage structure so uh so so i guess to a degree you know you could be you know think of a you could see of a a a different vulcan society where you don't even like have marriage at all you have uh folks that's just like okay i am a, a woman i don't get the bonfire and uh, I'm looking to have a baby at this point. All right, so who is the middle of the blood fever that's available? And then just have that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, sure, you, you know, you're not, you know, you're not going to have, you know, all, you know, all your kids be from the same father, you know, most likely. But you know, it's, it's like, well, who's convenient? Otherwise, I have to wait a while until my husband's ready. So if you have a species with this kind of biological mating drive. They usually go into like spawning frenzies or like animals in heat, especially mammals, which it seems like Vulcans are somehow analogous. Their, their blood might be green, but they're mammal-like. Yeah, go into kind of a like heat period, and that's the only time they are capable of mating, and then they will just mate indiscriminately for a while until pregnancy occurs. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, well, I, I guess I'm going to have some kids. The human system that they're setting up here, uh, one, we are actually anthropologically unsure of how long uh, per like marriages like we take for granted now actually existed, like a, a monogamous structure. You know, I've heard, you know, you know, argued that, you know, part of that kind of came about, uh, you know, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, to, to sort of know who your kids are to a certain degree. But there's also uh, you know, things that suggest that might not actually be the case. So, you know. Yeah. If you if you look at the actual numbers, um, I, I forget the exact percentage right now, but there's something about how we're something around like 60 to 70 percent monogamous in general. But you you have trouble knowing how much of that is societal. But yeah. that basically means that most humans are monogamous with occasional externally monogamous relationships. Yeah, sometimes you, you get that uh, twinkle in your eye and you're like, hmm, that person over there is really hot. And then suddenly you're not monogamous anymore. Surprise! So there's some debate on how much you know monogamy was a through line, whether it's something that pops up every now and then, whether humans are naturally polyamorous, or maybe it's a personality thing and some people are monogamous and some people are polyamorous to keep kind of the general gene population going. Uh, but and uh, 
you know, as far as people I know, that seems to be, you know, a little bit of both. <laughs> and there's a couple of things with this, especially when it comes to something like a biological mating drive, which is what so much of this episode seems to be based on. Uh, humans actually have a somewhat absurdly low success rate when it comes to breeding. Yeah, yeah we, don't, we don't do it for super often. And, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of try a lot but don't necessarily get it very often yeah even even amongst like someone like trying to conceive a child there is a fairly low success rate given how many times you have to try especially compared to other mammals and animals that have heat cycles like this where there mm -hmm. is often something close to a 100 percent success rate you get busy and then yeah you're gonna be hit you're gonna be pregnant yeah which is like our entire structure, like the one of the reasons that we have become a widespread species on Earth is because of this like social mating thing where we have a very, very low mating success rate. But that doesn't matter because we also don't have this kind of breeding cycle. We can breed throughout the year whenever resources are available, which makes us actually fairly unusual amongst animal species. Uh, makes us able to survive, uh, you, know, you know, you know, complicated situations where, you know, having our, uh, you know, mating habits, you know, get in the way of our survival would be kind of, you know, dangerous. Yeah, we actually have a fairly close mating structure to something like a pigeon, uh, which is another one of the most widespread animals on the planet. Be like the pigeon or not to be the be like the pigeon? That is the question. So the the structure that they're setting up here presupposes a Western style of marriage, mm -hmm. which is just odd when you're trying to mix it with this kind of highly incentivized biological mating drive. Yep, and it gets into this weird pomp and ceremony with the repression of your urges as a high class person you, know, you you can't show any sort of you know lewdness that is improper folks we have to hide it behind this veil of you know you know costumes and behaviors and ways of doing things so that it makes it all uh, palatable to the sensible people in our, our society except not as much palatable as excusable yeah you see it's excusable more in this idea of the more you have to repress as i like a high class person you have to repress these drives just push them down so when they eventually come out it's excusable the horrible things they get up to because they had to repress all their sexual urges. So, of course, when they, you know, finally break three, free, they're going to do something unpalatable. And, like, surrounding it with all this weird circumstance and things. Like, this is... Spock's, like, got this weird, I have to mate or I'm going to die thing. Like, it excuses basically anything that he would have to do to be able to mate at this point. Mm -hmm. Up to and including killing someone. Yes. Because he <laughs> has to repress his drives to a point that of course this is how he's going to act when they stop being repressed yeah, it's the, excusing uh... it it's excusing him literally killing someone because of course he has had to repress this stuff for his entire life yeah the, uh, the boil over uh, the the charged battery the the uh, you know uh, pressure cooker situation 
you know, sort of perspective of all this. That's always kind of been this excuse for like, you know, high class people do the worst kind of stuff to each other. But it's excused because they've, of course, repressed it the rest of their lives. Oh, yes, because we are so much better than everybody else. We got a we have this way of being that is just so much more pure and good that, uh, you know, uh, it, it is it, it's going against our inner nature, our inner our inner beast. Our, our, and so we have to go out and start the purge suddenly because, uh, you know, that's uh, that's how humans work. Right. Or I guess Vulcans in this case, uh, because, you know. And it's always been used to alternately hide and excuse the negative behavior of people that we consider the upper classes. So, um, screw these guys. <laughs> yeah, basically. There's, um, there's just this kind of depressing thing that I keep thinking of when it comes to that kind of stuff of, like, um, Freud's original theories of hysteria, which, um, it's a term that has fallen out of favor because of the because of the associations with uh, the misogyny and like hysterical women and things but at the time that was the the term that they were using for the way certain women were behaving was like hysteria it was considered a medical term at the time and mm -hmm. freud's original theory that he figured out from actually taking the time to ask some women what was going on which was a completely radical idea at that time like, huh, so we don't just assume we know what women think and uh, behave like? Why? And we're actually going to go out and do some research? Huh, perish the thought. And what he discovered in his initial theories and his original papers, which came out before all of the stuff that Freud is known for, all of the, like, you know, anal retentive, oral retentive, weird psychosexual stuff. Yeah. He discovered that... Hysteria was actually linked almost 100% to early sexual abuse suffered within the family. Huh. And he published a paper to that effect. It's like, you know, guys, maybe there's maybe there's actually like a, a, a different problem here. This is just more of a symptom of that we're like thinking is the main thing and thus not do, delving any deeper. But, of course... Given that the people who were perpetrating this sexual abuse were extremely powerful, rich, well-known families, mm -hmm. they did not like this idea at all, and they told him to change his theories, which he did, and it led to our weird psychosexual, psychodynamic stuff that uh, people laugh at Freud for now. Yeah. So, uh, it's like, well, you have to stop being a good scientist now. Uh, go do stuff that will make us uh, not angry at you. And you can understand where it's coming from societally. Like, it's not exactly a, you know, go repress this. It's everyone in society going, that can't be right. These, like, well-known famous people can't be that horrible. You must be wrong in your theory. You know, this seems to come up throughout history a lot. And it's happened a lot recently, too. Yes, and it's just things that you use to excuse high-class, famous people. Mm -hmm. Because, like, you know, if you think about it, like, with actors and things, you have this, like, whole thing of um, sex addicts that was popularized a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Where, like, you have such a high-stress, whatever lifestyle, you basically become a 
addicted to sex because of the repression and whatever. So it's excusable, right? It's just an addiction. It's excusable. We're going to send them to a rehab center. It'll all be fine. Hooray, we've, we've solved the problem. And since they, they try to make it biological in this episode, but since they're drawing so many parallels between Vulcan society and human society... Mm-hmm. You basically just have what you would later call a sex addict in Spock. He is so compelled to do this that you're going to excuse any behavior. Oh, no matter how crappy it is. So should we move on to something less depressing or should we talk about Orientalism again? Um, well, I was going to mention a few alternatives, uh, comparisons they could have made uh, to uh, in their thinking of dreaming up what's going on here. Instead of salmon, who all run in, release a bunch of sperm and eggs, and then die. Yeah, well, that's not actually what's going on here. But they're like, well, this is what kind of like what it is. But yeah, it's not actually what's going the case. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, so, what if the Vulcans were instead like snails? Snails. I mean, they get there very slowly. Yeah, they get there very slowly, but um, to help uh, stimulate the the males to produce their 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 spunk there. Uh, the, the other snail, like, like stabs them with a love dart and it like, <laughs> and, and so you, you, in order to get busy, you got to get stabbed, <laughs> which I guess is kind of similar to what's going on here, <laughs> except you're trying to avoid being stabbed, huh? Um, there's of course, you know, uh, you can go a little bit more extreme where, where there's like bees where you get the drone and then the, and the queen and then the, the drone gets busy and then dies. So, you know, maybe Spock's going to die, but he's also going to die from AIDS anyway. Hmm. Now, I think that'd be, I, th- I don't think that would uh, you know, fly too well as far as, you know, uh, you know, continuing the series. Um, how about anglerfish? Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so you're familiar with those? The, the male gets eaten and basically becomes a secondary organ. Yep. <laughs> Spock, do you want to be part of your wife's body? No? Okay. <laughs> the only, like more realistic thing that i could think of would actually be an albatross huh who don't die when they don't mate but they they mate once a year they are incredibly monogamous but mm-hmm. they don't actually see their mate other than that one time a year they both fly off spend almost an entire year airborne, then return back to their mating site, somehow find each other, have their one chick, raise it, and then leave again until the next year. Well, it's time to be off in the sky for a while. See you next year. But the thing with this is, they really, really love to separate out the relationship from any kind of emotional drive, which is so odd because if you have something like this, if you actually think about biologically how things like this would be compelled, we're not allowed to think or talk about animals having emotions. And I understand that from our point of view, we actually cannot you know, understand an animal mind well enough to say whether or not they have emotions. But you can argue that they probably have an analogous structure that is used in a similar way. So if you were going to compel an animal, biologically compel an animal to go through these behaviors, you would have to be emotionally drawn to them. 
Spock seems to just have this inherent knowledge that he is going to die unless he does this, and it takes over his being in this weird Jacqueline Hyde sort of way. Suddenly, uh, your your body's going all you know weird chemically, and you 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 no longer mentally structured the same way. I guess. Yeah, instead of just having like, you know, it starts to feel like you get really really homesick and. It starts feeling good to think about the place that you used to be, and you go over there and you like find your find your mate and have whatever happy feelings. Yeah. It's it's all treated negatively. The entire yeah. <laughs> idea that you would need sex at all is treated so negative. It's it's like inconvenient and deadly. So so maybe they should have gone with a different uh, animal altogether. There's like a whole bunch of lizards you see that. Uh, are able to reproduce asexually. They should go on that route. Except they would all need to be female. <laughs> well, well, surprise, Spock was a girl all along. That would be more just interesting. Could, yeah, he just suddenly has a baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, if they're not a mammal or not sexually dimorphic, but since everything in Star Trek is a mammal, including the lizards. Yep. <laughs> Hmm, all these lizard ladies seem to have boobs. A lot of the other stuff I had is stuff that we've kind of mentioned before. They definitely have a very orientalist structure going on with the Vulcans, but it's a different kind. You're more mm-hmm. uh, South South Asian India in this one yes. instead of the Middle East that we had with the Klingons. Mm-hmm. With the bells and the gongs and the gong ceremony things. It's just all... I don't know. It's not alien if it's a culture that exists. The strange yeah. temples. Yes. <laughs> it's like, well, this is obviously being borrowed a lot from stuff in our world. Hmm. How alien could it be? <laughs> and it's just presented as alien. It's a it's a cultural thing from a continent that you're not on, so of course it makes sense that it would be on another planet. Which I guess to the six folks of the sixties, you know, being like in the next state over is like being in another planet. So, you know, still have that, that perspective sometimes. <laughs> Every now and then I still have to wrap my head around the timeline of when this is happening. Mm-hmm. Because it didn't occur to me till after I watched this episode. This was written in the middle of the 60s sexual revolution. Yep. So, uh, we're free love, everybody. Also, uh, weird sex, you know, arranged marriage stuff. <laughs> yeah, they hate sex and love and emotions around it so much in this episode. They hate it. And this was definitely get this was getting into a time period where like this this like free love body autonomy feminism was coming in more thanks to like in birth control innovations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe the feminine mystique was written near the beginning of this time. I don't have that in my notes right in front of me, so I yeah, apologize yeah. if I'm getting my timeline inaccurately. Yeah, this sounds right to me, but I don't got that info either. So. The fact that they have such a misogynist take on sex in this episode, it's like so obvious, such an obvious white male pushback against this sexual revolution idea that was going on. They're so not okay with like 
female-led sex. They're not okay with sex at all in this show. They're okay with male domination, and they talk yes. about that a lot. Yes. But they're very not okay with sex. Maybe in this you know particular instance, you know, uh, we, we do have maybe a little bit of a a a a, a window into the different attitudes of sex between cultures in the the show a little bit uh because at one point where where kirk started catching on like oh this is what this is about he he's like kind of you know amused smirking and like you know this is like kind of normal what's what's the deal here and you know and then but, but spock who's being the one who's like no this is all secret this is all shameful and stuff like that so maybe at the at this point in time you know in the future humans are better than what the show seems to be arguing for (laughs) that seems to be the implication i mean they're still weirdly awkward about it yeah i couldn't think of a good way to fit it in there was that nice line when kirk and spock are talking where spock asks well humans thought vulcans reproduced and say well we assumed that you did it logically (laughs) yep (laughs) great line (laughs) is it logical to have a baby at this point yes okay we're having a baby (laughs) All right, well that, that works. <laughs> they want both. They want to have their they want to have their misogyny and eat it too. So yep. They just they they want Spock to be a logical being. They even gets mad at T'Pring for not being logical when he is in this weird, like basically drugged out blood feud thing. Yes, and he's like, "Why weren't you being logical?" <laughs> Also, it's only okay that she doesn't want to be with him because it's apparently logical. Also, because it's not because she doesn't want to have an arranged marriage. It's not because she's not interested in mating with someone right now. It's because she's got a closer hottie. Yeah, got a closer hottie who's not on a spaceship all the time, who's right here, and they're probably already sleeping together, honestly. Yep, and that's the only reason it's okay. You can't have a single woman running around god forbid oh no the end of the world so you you get to be okay with it because someone is still owning her it's just not spock and we're supposed to be a little sad but but you know i think spock even despite how awful this whole situation is i think you could do better honestly well what's interesting is i've i've had people describe this episode to me before i hadn't seen it but it's famous enough i've had people describe it and they loved her explanations they they talk about it like oh my god she was so clever and she was so like she was able to play the system and look how great she was and look like like this gives her the autonomy like this is putting her in control as like a scheming background controlling from the shadows female character which is its own kind of trope but you know uh but at the same time all her plans do require somebody to die but apparently that's just implicit with how this works on Vulcan because that's how the entire structure of their mating ritual is set up. There's no way for her to not marry Spock without someone dying. Unless you could figure out some way where someone will accept the challenge but won't kill Spock but is also undefeatable. Hmm. <laughs> Wait, unless you read the end of the script is like, oh, McCoy has some drugs that can do the thing. Okay, <laughs> it's going to be fine. Well, let's play what if they wrote this in next gen. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> they would have met her before the third act. She would have expressed her hesitance about wanting to get married at all to someone. And they would have hatched some sort of scheme to get around this 
this cultural thing after having a big discussion on how much they should be interfering with other species mating rituals. Yes, uh, but this, this person's a member of our crew, so it's kind of okay. Hmm. <laughs> and then they made a they might have wound up with the same scenario, and they would only reveal it to us, the audience, later on that this was actually part of the plan. Yes, everyone was in on it from the start. Surprise. <laughs> But instead, you get whatever this hodgepodge mess is. Oh, I feel like we've been depressingly misogynist for just long enough, so maybe it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hello, everybody. Once again, the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show, where we have a variety of contestants to the show from the today's episode coming in to be all like, hey, we're going to get some points scored up. So we've counted out the points and we have some winners. Our first award for uh, getting his points together is the Too Horny to Live Award, which goes to Spock for having Pon Far and all that stuff. What does he win, Gepwin? Spock wins the internet. I think if they had the internet, he would have found a solution earlier. Hmm. Maybe some instructional visit videos at the very least. Oh. Our second award is the Fine Print Award, which goes to Kirk because he should have asked if this was a fight to the death, or, you know, any other questions before signing on. What does he win, Gepwin? Kirk gets some sort of treaty or rules of etiquette. He needs to learn some politics. He's the head of a spaceship. Yes, he seems to be resistant to politics in general, but sometimes it might keep your head on your shoulders, man. Our third and final award today is the Gaould Style Award, which goes to Tapa, or Tapau, or whatever it is, uh, for the over-the-top wedding procession where she's brought in like some sort of super queen from beyond the uh, time and space. What does she win, Gepwin? She wins... Having been conquered, the conquerors have become the conquered. You don't get this kind of weird ceremony unless you think you're hot stuff, but we know the Vulcans got conquered somewhere in the past, and they're trying to hold on to the last aspect of their dominion. Hmm. Well, I guess they're uh, going to be, uh, you know, you know, holding on to that with a, a nice big procession of where are we going now after this wedding ceremony didn't go anywhere. And I think that's it for uh, today. Thank you very much, and uh, Gepwin, take us away. Congratulations to all of our contestants. It's a good thing you barely survived. And thank you for joining us on the galaxy's favorite game show. Next week. We meet another god. Hooray! All power to the guy person. Yep, we are getting into, I guess, more sort of Gaul Stargate stuff than yeah. you even mentioned in the <laughs> awards show. That was not intentional. <laughs> I actually looked up uh, the next episode after I wrote those up. So. so the next episode is Who Mourns for Adonis? Who? Who? Tell us! Tell us, Gepwin, who? Well, I guess not anyone, because they meet Apollo. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know where Adonis came from. Maybe Apollo mourns for him. I guess we should ask. Hey, Apollo, do you mourn for Adonis? <laughs> I, this, I don't remember this being a particularly good episode. Um, I actually heard someone mention it as a slightly more feminist episode, because the uh, 
I believe it's an anthropologist or biologist they bring down to be like Apollo's wife gets some good zingers in there. But I honestly haven't seen this one in ages except for the beginning where a giant green glowy hand grabs the Enterprise out of the sky. Neat. When I become an all-powerful being from beyond the stars, I want to have a giant green glowing hand that picks spaceships out of the sky. So, I I don't know. We're, this This one I haven't seen... I know a little bit of it. It's not supposed to be great. It's another one of the, like, Kirk takes on a god because apparently they consider Kirk to be at that level that they have to bring in literal historical gods for him to fight. When your, your badass level is, you know, up to, like, level 15 on a scale of, like, 1 to 5, you, you got you got to go somewhere. <laughs> yep. Ugh. Oh, well. We'll figure out more about that next week when we watch Who Mourns for Adonis on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, a very different type of Apollo program. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on youtube.com slash and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principal, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, Please be aware the next time you step off the transporter that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>